Good morning. We are continuing through the book of Genesis. So if you have a copy of the scriptures or if it's on your iPhone, open up to Genesis chapter 38. If you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand and we'll get a copy to you. No hands being... Wow, that's the first time no one has raised their hand. Let's take a moment of silence and, and think everyone brought a Bible today or everyone has a phone and now it's on their phone. So, And let's pray before we start. Lord God, as we once again look at these passages in Scripture, we pray for hearts that are hungry to hear. We pray for lives that desire to learn and be changed and that our time here would be rich with your presence and an awareness of you and your voice speaking to us. Bless our time together, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we left off in Genesis chapter 37, and it was a very emotional time where we saw that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and given over into slavery. And as this incredible event takes place, if we went from the end of chapter 37 to the beginning of chapter 39, it would flow perfectly. There, there would be no interruption, no hiccup. It would just be like, yes, the story continues. But there's this chapter 38, this little story in between that just seems to come out of left field. And it's one of these stories that is just god-awful. I don't know how else to put it. It's just a terrible story, and we're going to read it so you can see. You're right. It was an awful story. But these stories that are here are there for a purpose. When we encounter something that is difficult, something that we would want to stumble over, something that trips us up or something that freaks us out mentally, understand that that's really the intent that is there. It's meant to cause you to go, what? What's this about? Why is this going on? Because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but life is like that sometimes, right? Have you guys ever had those days in life where it's like, what? Where did this day come from? When did this happen? How did this take place? This week I had a couple of those events where someone came up to me, spoke to me, and my mind was just like reeling from the trauma of what takes place in our lives. Things that I never imagined would happen have happened. Things that I just break my heart have taken place and we just think, what's going on here? And so when we encounter these stories, it's meant to shock us. It's meant to sober us up. Even like the flood and the destruction of humanity was meant to cause us some understanding or the Tower of Babel or when Isaac was put on the altar by his father Abraham. Those stories are meant to cause us to stop and pause and really what they're meant to do is have us step back so that we can frame the whole picture of what's going on and how this story fits in that picture. 
You see, if you just take the isolated incident of the flood and you take it out of the narrative of God's creating mankind and loving and nourishing mankind, then it seems very cruel. If you take the story of Abraham and Isaac and you take out the character and heart of God, the promise of God to Abraham, and you think what kind of God would ask someone to sacrifice their son and didn't take into account what was happening at that time in history where that was a common occurrence and then come to the conclusion, well, what kind of God would require you to sacrifice your son? And the answer is not this God. This God will provide himself the sacrifice. This God will make himself a covenant with mankind. Then you lose the understanding of the story. And the same thing is happening here. There's been something going on throughout the book of Genesis that helps us grasp what's going to be happening here in a moment. I'm preparing you for the story that's here, okay? Throughout the story of Genesis, we have this kind of good and evil, this hero-villain mentality taking place. We have it in the garden, the innocence of Adam and Eve and then the serpent. We have Cain who, who killed his brother Abel. We have Abraham and Lot. We have Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And now what we are doing in the story of Joseph, there's this interruption and there's this other character, Judah. Judah, who was the eldest son, who was the brother of Joseph. When we start seeing this contrasting event that takes place. And almost every hero, if you will, in Genesis has a villain. And so why Judah? Well, Judah, remember from chapter 37, emerged as the leader. He was the instigator of that whole incident with Joseph. He's also the eldest. And throughout the book of Genesis, God seems to have this disregard for the firstborn status. And what he's doing is preparing us for an understanding of his character, that God does not depend on our abilities, our strength, the things that we would focus on. His preference seems to be for those who are the underdog. And in doing so, it becomes clear God's work does not depend on human hands, nor on their natural gifts or strength. And so most everyone who reads this chapter is disturbed by it. And again, I want to let you know, I think that's the point. But there's yet another and even more remarkable message that we're going to find in this story. That despite how awful things are, God is still able to work. And so let's read... Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read the entire thing and we'll talk about it a little bit. Okay. Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man, Adullam, near Herah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. I could say something, but I won't. She conceived again 
and gave birth to another, to a son named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, firstborn, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight, Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring to your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring to, for his brother. Yep, I'm reading the Bible here. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hera, the Aldamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Then Judah saw her. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was the daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get this pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enium? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh, man. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. What? Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, 
and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Of course, twin boys. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand to the midwife, took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first, but when he drew back his hand, the other came out and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zira. Man, oh man. What an amazing, interesting Awful set of events. There's a few things I want to talk about in this passage. As we're looking at this idea of a villain and this darkness, we see that there is a period of time that takes place here. This doesn't happen just in a short moment. And so while this is going on, remember, Joseph is in Egypt as a slave. And and what's happening is a dark picture is being painted so that we can later on see a a great light. And, And the dark picture that is being painted is being painted here in Judah and his family. And first of all, we got to talk about Ur and Onan, the ones who, who die because it's so interesting how it says that they were evil, they were wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord killed them. It sounds like God's the hitman. And when people aren't right in his eyes, he's going to off them. And we just get that sense of it. But there's so many places in Scripture in the Psalms where why do the wicked prosper? And so we need to kind of grab hold of what's taking place here. The events and their untimely death to the storyteller's audience would seem like a, a senseless tragedy. A person didn't have any children, died, that, that's senseless, that's terrible. We don't know the evil or the wickedness. There's no accounting for what has taken place or why they're seen in this way. However, according to their worldview at that time, there, were nev- there was never a senseless tragedy. In other words, there was always a reason. And this carried on throughout their traditions. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that they were born blind? The idea was that there's a reason behind this blindness. There must be some sin involved. And so even though these people were wicked and and evil in some way, there is this understanding, well, okay, they got what's coming to them. And that was kind of the mentality. And when it says the Lord killed them, that's what they're meaning. They got what's coming to them. So it's not like God's going around just zapping people, just offing people. Oh, you blew it today. Bam. Drop. Oh, man, what happened? Oh, he did wicked in the Lord's sight. What are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. You know, it's not that sense of, of what's taking place. It's just saying something untimely happened. God is responsible for life. So God did it. He got what's coming to him. He was an evil person. He was a wicked person. Whatever they did, however that was, we don't fully understand. And then the story goes on because it's not revealing just a theological truth, but he's merely reporting the events in the context of that culture. He's just telling us what's happening. And so we get weirded out, and again, I think rightly so, you know, this brother dies, hey, you need to 
take his wife, sleep with her so that he has a child. It's like, what? Wait, where does that happen in the agreement? Again, it's a cultural thing. It's not saying it's right or it's wrong. It's just the way it was. And you see, Onan's problem, his wickedness, his crime was that he was killing off his brother's line. And so he was not going to see his brother's line continue. Basically, he wanted his own inheritance because the firstborn was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. And he's saying, oh, I'm not going to give it to people I'm not part of. I want that for myself. And so that was a greedy aspect of what is taking place. And what we're seeing here is this attitude And this characteristic of Judah just seems to be spreading. He puts his brother into slavery. He's just jealous. He's a person who's just in it for himself, it seems. And all of a sudden, we see that that starts to show up in the people who are part of his family. Again, the apple isn't falling far from the tree in any of these things. And so... As the story unfolds, then we have the story of Tamar. And what Tamar is trying to do is actually continue the lineage as an heir and even in the tribe of Judah. And so she takes it upon herself to make sure that she has a child and she does it in this just dark way, dresses up as a prostitute. Then comes Judah You see the story, we read this story. And when Judah says that she is more righteous than I, he's not speaking about it morally, like, oh, she's more of a moral, I mean, come on. She's more moral than I. She was a prostitute who slept with me, but I was the John who slept with prostitutes. It's not like, oh, yeah, that's much better. You know, it's like, that's not what he's talking about here. The idea here is that she was continuing the lineage. She was being true to what was supposed to happen in that culture, and I wasn't. And so there's just no good that's coming out of this chapter. You won't find any real answers here that's taking place the full meaning of what's going on here is actually going to emerge later on. For now, Judah is just a work in progress. In fact, Joseph is going to be an important part of that work later on. But right now, this poor character of Judah and his family and everyone involved in this story is going to make the character of Joseph shine brighter. And so these stories are being written to to bring about that kind of understanding. You see, in every story, you you need this tension. You you need this reality of the the bad and the good. If, If there's no tension, there's no story. Think of every movie that you watch. It doesn't matter what the movie, there has to be some kind of tension, some kind of right and wrong and good and evil. That takes place. I recently read Donald Miller's uh, book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Or is it A Thousand Years in a Million Miles? No, it's A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in this book, he talks about how he had a movie made about one of his previous books, Blue Like Jazz. And as they were making the movie, they were talking about how they were going to make the movie. And that 
Blue Like Jazz is kind of a story of his life, and they're saying, well, well no, we need, we need you to be first someone who people like. And he goes, what do you mean? Aren't I likable already? And he goes, no, first you have to save the cat. He goes, save the cat? What's that? It's like, there has to be an incident where people say, oh, we like them. Right? And so there has to be this, oh man, I really like them. To have that happen, you have to save the cat. You have to help someone who's in distress. You have to have someone who is being oppressed or someone who you rescue, something that you come in and save the day so people actually take a liking to you. And you think about all the TV shows and the movies, there's always this kind of ebb and flow. And sometimes it's back and forth and you start thinking, is that the good guy? Or are they the, oh, I like them now, but I hated them last episode or last season. They were awful, right? Like the Walking Dead, right? The characters have changed. You know, it's all Daryl, man. He's a hero now all of a sudden. It's like, what? How did that happen? Or Lost? Right, don't get me started on Lost. You know, it's... There has to be this tension that's there so that all of a sudden when it emerges, it stands out. And what we're seeing is life is full of things like that. And in this time of darkness that is a lot like life many times, this isn't a fabricated story. This is really what happened. And in this darkness, it's going to actually give more credence to the light and the character of Joseph that that beam of light is more noticeable surrounded by the darkness. We, we don't see stars in the daytime. It's against the dark background that they stand out. Last night was a super moon. Did you guys see the super moon last night? Did you even know there was a super moon? had an S on it and everything. It was <laughs> spectacular. Karina and I went out and it's like, yeah, that super just seems bigger. It seems brighter than usual. Well... For that to shine, there has to be the darkness surrounding it. And I want to suggest that our lives are the same way. You say, man, there's darkness all around me. You don't know my history. You don't know the things that I've been through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know the people in my family. (laughs) How is it compared to, to Judah and his family? You see, it's probably not so unusual. And in these times of darkness, the story is going to go on and tell us that something can shine even in the darkness, even in this time. And so Judah is going to undergo some dramatic change. In fact, again, Joseph is going to help that change take place. But we need to ask ourselves, too, am I playing the role of the villain or the hero? In the story of my life, how will I emerge? Am I a villain to someone around me? Am I a villain to my wife, to my children, to my fellow people at work? Am I playing the role where one day it'll be looked back and say, wow, what they did was very hurtful. What they did was very traumatic. What they did was devastating to other people. Am I taking that role Or am I taking on the role of the hero? Judah was able to change. So if you are in the role of the villain, take hope. Because there is hope. Which leads us in to chapter 39. 
And the point of this story, this episode that we've read, is to highlight Joseph's good character. And so let's read chapter 39. Because we need something after that chapter, right? It's like, don't leave us here, please. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessings of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Doesn't that sound nice? I could use the Joseph, right? I just want to be concerned with the food I eat. What a a great thing. Okay, that's the kind of guy Joseph was. Oh, if we could all have a Joseph in our life. Now Joseph was well built. Ooh, the story changes, okay? Cue the music. Joseph doesn't have a shirt on. He's walking. Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look! She said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make a sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did.
Joseph's story bears a resemblance to a number of stories that take place throughout the book of Genesis or throughout the Old Testament. We see similarities with Esther. We see similarities with Daniel. There is a, a Hebrew who is alone in exile and they face this risk of personal sacrifice and they're up against antagonists, these people who are opposing them. The quality of each of these characters is outstanding. In other words, their, their character, their life is what shines in each of these areas. Each one finds favor with their Gentile master, their Gentile supervisor. And each one rises to a prominent place and, and holds an office close to, to the ruler, to the king. Each one uses their position to promote the welfare of their people. And the lesson that we're being taught in these stories is how Israel, how God's man or woman who is put into this place of captivity, how they are to behave even while in exile. And so Joseph's character, like Esther's, like Daniel's, is a crucial element to this story. The character is what leads to this story having the outcome that it does. And so what we're understanding here is even though you are in this situation with opposition, with accusation, you are in exile, you are away from your home, your family, and everything that you are knowing and love, what you do matters. Who you are is important because your character is important. The chapter starts off and ends where the Lord showed kindness and favor to Joseph, that the hand of the Lord was upon him. It's there at the beginning and it's there at the end. And even though Joseph might not recognize it, it's there throughout the middle as well. And so how do you deal with this difficulty? How do you deal when you're enslaved? How do you deal when you're tempted? How do you deal when you're falsely accused? What is your response supposed to be? How do you answer to these things? And we see that the answer really is your character. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. A passage that I think most of us are familiar with. And it's interesting because of how we look at these things. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 10. Paul is writing to, to the church at Ephesus. And he says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. 
And we're going to go on and read it, but think first of all what he's just said. How do you resist this, this temptation, these times of difficulty? You're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And I think in our minds when we think, okay, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, therefore I have to, to do something that is not a, determined in flesh and blood. I, I have to have some kind of thing. Okay, the armor of God then. What is the armor of God? And he goes on and he tells us, Stand firm, verse 14 then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Truth. Living a life that is truthful. Paul tells us is part of the armor. And it's combating the spiritual warfare. If you're not a person of truth, then your armor is weak. You see, we like to spiritualize things. We, we like to make it so that, oh yeah, you know, the, we got to just have this idea of truth. No, truth is something that we live. See, Judah was not a person of truth. He lied to Jacob and said that Joseph was dead. Judah was not a person of truth. He was deceptive. He lied to Tamar. He did not plan that she would ever have a child or be a line in his heritage. Joseph was truthful. It goes on, it says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. What is righteousness? It's living right. It's doing the right thing. You see, if you're going to attack the temptation, the best way to attack it is to develop a life that is doing what is right. Because what happens to us as people when we get used to doing things wrong, that way of doing things wrong becomes a way of life and pretty soon it becomes a habit and we have the momentum of our life and all those bad habits seem to go with us. And with those bad habits come the consequences that are usually relational in the people that we affect. And so being truthful, being a person who lives right, he goes on, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, living peaceful with people, as much that lies within you, live at peace with all men. Not being an antagonist, not being someone who's hostile, not being someone who aggravates the situation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. This is a characteristic of God. And this is how we resist these things. And so these things that we see here, in addition to this, the shield of faith. Remember, faith is always in something. Your faith and belief in Christ which can extinguish the flaming arrows. In other words, we are believing in something. I am living right for a reason. I am being truthful for a reason. I am trying to create peace for a reason. I have an agenda that I'm working towards. And these things are all part of a person's character. And so what we see taking place in Joseph is he is a person of character. And a person of character is someone who's hand God is upon. Why? Because God can entrust 
his work to them. And so the question isn't, well, why isn't God blessing me? Or, or what do I need to do to get God to bless me? I need to, I need to read more. I need to pray more. Well, those things are good, but what you really need to do is be a person of character. And how do I, I deal with the, the darkness around me? How do I deal with these people at work who are lying, who are, who are conniving? How do I deal with the family who is so messed up and, and strangling me? How do I deal with life that's crashing down on me? You need to be a person of character. If you want to rise out of that mire, you need to be a person whose character rises out of that mire because that's what it's necessary. Taking on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And again, I believe the word of God is the gospel. You have to be a person who has the character that comes from being a follower of God, a follower of Christ, a person who is following the gospel. You see, the character is what needs to take place. And in verse 8, back in chapter 39, Joseph says something that gives us insight into his character. You know, for years I, I always heard, well, you know, the key is to run. When you get into temptation, run. But I don't know, sometimes you can't run. Sometimes you're there. There's not a place to run. Sometimes if it's your mind, that's the minefield. But verse 8, I think, gives us insight into what's happening. Or actually, verse 9, where he says, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because of you, his wife, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He didn't say sin against his master. He said sin against God. And I'm wondering, well, what is this sin against God? Again, our minds immediately go to this moral thing. Well, you know, it's because you can't sleep with another man's wife. That's a sin against God. It's a moral thing. But really what the sin is, is missing the mark of what God has intended for your life. In other words, God has a, a design for you to live a certain way, to live a life. How can you sin against the thing that God has for you to live? You see, the, the issue that held Joseph was that he wanted to be the real person he was meant to be. And so doing this was going to short-circuit his life from what who he was meant to be. What are the things that are short-circuiting you from being the person you know you should be? What are the things that are holding you down, those things that are anchoring you from living that life fully, that they're, help, they're helping you to miss that mark? Those things, those habits, that attitude, the behavior that is tripping you up, you see, we first sin against who we were created to be. Because if we don't have that at the core, then you will find a way to sin. 
our accountability is to what we were designed to be by God. See, if I can lie to my wife, I can lie to my accountability group. But if I will own who I am before God, then it comes home to roost. In those times in my life where I said, God, I just don't like who I am. I'm saying, God, this is not what you've made me to be. I want to deal with this issue. And the issue is inside of me. It's my heart. How can I sin against who God has created me to be. And so we see some characteristics that stand out. I got four things that stood out in Joseph's life and his character. One is he maintained his integrity. He never forgot who he was. He didn't give in. You know, why not? I don't want to, you know, deal with the consequences. I'll sleep with his wife as opposed to the story of Judah and Tamar. No, he held his integrity. He, knowing who he was, kept him. You see, knowing who we are creates boundaries for us that we recognize. And when we cross those boundaries, we say, ah, I don't like who I am right now. Anyone ever been there? I know some of you have been there. I know I've gotten phone calls from you. I know I've called myself on this a few times. Right, Sam, do you like where you're at? No, I don't like where I'm at. Okay, why don't you get back? Okay, I'm going back now. And someone will call me and say, hey, man, I I blew it. I did this. And why are they calling me? Because they don't like who they are. And so when we stop living who we were meant to be, We cross those boundaries. Knowing who we are creates the boundaries. Joseph did not give up hope. Throughout this story, we're going to see that the man always had a future. Sometimes that's where our defeat comes. We just lose hope. Events happen and they just tear us down. And they just tear us down. And after a while, we are just so worn out. We are so beat up. I'm tired of being hurt. I'm tired of being betrayed. I'm tired of being lied to. I'm tired of being used. I'm tired of striving and striving and just getting nowhere. And pretty soon we just give up. And if you lose hope, you will lose the will to move forward. And so Joseph in this circumstance and in his life did not lose hope, it challenges me, it challenges us. Have I given up hope? Have I quit? Am I throwing in the towel saying, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too difficult. It's not what I expected. It's not what I want. And so I'm going to throw a pity party and no one's invited, just me. And it becomes this place of desperation. And the people who lose hope ultimately lose their life. We also see that Joseph did not stop doing what he did and doing it well. In prison, he didn't just sit on the bunk, 
playing his harmonica, singing the blues. Nobody knows my sorrow. Even when he was betrayed a second time, he worked his way to the top. Again, it has to do with his identity. I, I can remember starting a job working in a lumber yard and I had been through a number of things. I had worked at a church for many years and I was, quote, on staff, which is, you know, what the goal was for me. Oh, yeah, I'm on staff. Yay, I'm full-time ministry. Yeah, it was like a big deal. And then that fell through. You know, the finances weren't there to support me, and so I had to get another job. And so I started working in construction doing fire sprinklers. And I started off doing engineering. So that was kind of cool because I'm in the office, air conditioning, listening to my music, and I'm doing some drafting, learning the codes. Yeah, I'm kind of important. Go to the places, and I tell the guys on the job, yeah, you need to do this, this, and this. And then things got slow, and I had to go out in the field. Now i got to get my hands dirty. Okay, it's okay. I can adapt. I'm out in the field, and now I'm fitting pipe. I'm out there, you know, with the pipe machine, cutting oil. I'm coming home stinking and getting up early. And then the business closed because it was a bad economy back then. It was like the late 80s. So I got a job at another fire sprinkler company, but it was making less than half what I was making. So I was having to work twice as much just to make ends meet. And I was working as a foreman in a shop, and I had all these people getting on my case because they needed me to make sure the job got done. And there was twice as much pressure, half as much work, but I had to work twice as much just to get things even. And it was miserable. Carlos, the dark ages. And it was just bad. And then things got slow there and they let me go. And I got a job working in a lumber yard. I don't know lumber. That's wood. Yep. And so there I am in this lumber yard and, and the boss Pete is talking to this guy who, who's, uh, drives the truck, and I'm standing there, and, oh, who's this guy? Oh, yeah, his name's Sam. Oh, yeah, yeah, he doesn't know anything. He said that to me. Uh, he doesn't know anything. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's me. I don't know anything. And, oh, so he's just a yard dog? Yep, that's me. I'm just, I'm not even a human anymore. I'm just a yard dog. And so there I am in this lumber company. I'm just moving wood back and forth because I'm a yard dog. And I remember thinking, God, what's next? I just keep going downhill. I I'm used to be, you know, a minister. I, I, then I was an engineer, and then I was a fitter, and then I was a foreman, and now I'm a dog. And I can remember having this emotional crisis, sitting in the yard, moving lumber, thinking, man, what am I doing here? I'm, I, I, how many jobs have I had in the last 10 years? And here I am sorting lumber. And I can remember very clearly God saying, this might be what you're doing, but it's not who you are. And it was a sobering reminder that I have a purpose in life. And it's not to fit pipe. It's not to do fire sprinklers. It's not to play music. It, it's not to move lumber. I have a life that is created in the image of God and I am meant 
to live my life in a way that reflects His majesty. And we need that purpose. Without that sense of purpose, our lives lose their way. We also see that Joseph worked for the good of others. Everything he did was benefiting someone else. The direct benefits of his work didn't go to him. He didn't get rich working for Potiphar. Potiphar got rich. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything but what he was going to eat. The jailer was the same way. Hey, you take care of it. He made everyone else's life easier. His excellent behavior in prison did not win him freedom or an early release. You see, some employees refused to make their boss look good. As a result, they performed below their capabilities. Why? Because he doesn't deserve it. What are you doing? You have to ask yourself again, who are you? What is your character? Are, Are you a person of truth? Are you a person who's living right? Are you bringing peace in your life? Ultimately, it was Pharaoh and the Egyptians and then his own family that Joseph saved. The good he did, he did for others, and that became his own good. You see, your character and my character, if we live it out, it will produce for us what is good. If we care about other people, if we do for others, if we aren't just trying to satisfy ourselves, but actually caring and helping others, we find that it's actually what helps us. And isn't that what Jesus said? If you seek your own life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And so this isn't four steps to success. It's just we are meant to admire Joseph in this story. He's being built up on purpose. But we're also supposed to see how God supported him. The hand of the Lord was upon him. And you see, what is going to dissolve our fear? What is going to dissolve and get rid of our anxiety? It is the awareness of purpose and God's presence so that you see your life and understand that it is not without purpose, that God's presence is with you and that God is making you into the man or the woman you need to be that can make a difference in the world around you, the lives around you. And by making a difference in the lives around you, you make a difference in the world around you. Joseph had no idea that he would save a nation there by what he did in prison. If we lose our sense of purpose, we will lose our way. If you forget your purpose, you will lose your way. Now, what I find most fascinating about the dichotomy of Judah and Joseph is that when we step back and look at the ancestry, where did Jesus come from? Which line? The line of Judah. 
the one who was dark and lost and messed up, God says, I can do something even through this. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're surrounded by. It doesn't matter the history that has brought you to this place. You need to see the presence of God in your life. And God could take the awful story of Judah and produce the incredible work of Jesus. And he's able to do that in our lives as well. If we will take the fragments of who we are, the brokenness of who we are, if we will acknowledge the, the character flaws that we own, and we can say, God, do in me what you did through the line of Judah. Because God can. In spite of our questionable character, God can bring something wonderful in this world, through us. We need to recognize who we are and start living in that reality. Let's pray. Father, even as these stories are so different in the character of these two people, it's not ending happy right now for Joseph. He's still in prison. He's still a slave. He's still been betrayed by his brothers. But we know that your work isn't through. And Lord, may we parallel our lives with that, whether we we fit more like the villain of, of Judah or if we are actually fitting more as a hero like Joseph, but we still find ourselves in places that are just void of good and filled with darkness and here because of the results of what others have done to us. May we take a lesson from Joseph, not give up hope, recognize your presence and recognize who we are, even in the midst of where we are so that we can live the lives that you have for us. That we wouldn't sin against you. That doesn't mean do something bad. That we would fail to be who you have made us to be. That we'd live lives short of the potential you've put within us. Oh God, that's the crime. That's the sin. And Lord... That's where we find ourselves so many times. But may we not lose hope. May we continue to do well. And may, if we don't know what to do, if we're not sure how to get out of the the prison that we are in, may we begin by helping others. May we begin by doing what we can to make the lives of others better. May we start there by making the world around us a better place. And maybe from there, God, you can lead us into the freedom we need. Lord, as we continue to just take a time and reflect on these things, may you continue to speak to our hearts and may these next few songs be a response of our hearts to you. Lord, we give ourselves to you and see ourselves in need of your help, even as the characters in these stories that we read. So help us, we pray, Lord.
We ask it in Jesus' name.